All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI Podcast. I am, of course, your host, Sam Charrington. And today I'm joined by Jile Ho. Jile is a VP of Engineering at Qualcomm Technologies. Before we get into today's conversation, be sure to take a moment to head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your listening platform of choice. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review. Jile, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Sam. Very nice to meet you here. Yeah, I'm super excited to dig into our conversation. We'll be talking about, well, a pretty broad variety of things because you cover a broad variety of areas, but we'll be particularly digging into the work that you and your team are doing around generative AI on devices. But before we jump into that topic, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background. Sure, Sam. I'm specialized in information theory and signal processing. So this is actually is about 20 years ago when I obtained my PhD degree from uh, USD, and then I uh, came to Qualcomm right afterwards. So uh, one thing I should remember to note is um, the founding father of the information theory, whose uh, name is Klaus Shannon. He happened to be one of the early pioneers in the area of machine learning too. And also many of the machine learning, modern machine learning practice and achievements actually are inspired by information theory. I'll give you one example. Many times people using a term called a KL divergence, which is a divergence between two probability distributions. Actually, that concept first came through in the area of information theory, was introducing that context. And then later on, it's become a very, very popularly used when people using the training objective, when they're trying to train neural networks, for example. So there's a kind of a, a match made in heaven, so to speak, between information theory and, and artificial intelligence. Yeah, clearly. And that's particularly the case at Qualcomm, because a lot of what you do from an AI perspective is focused on applying machine learning algorithms to compression, which is also kind of a natural place for information theory. Right. I'm curious, uh, you know, I've spoken to many researchers there at Qualcomm, but you've had an opportunity to be instrumental in the forming and development of Qualcomm's AI research group there. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Sure. You know, a few years ago, we made a few acquisitions of the AI startups. And from where, you know, we assembled a few very smart kind of, you know, minds, people in the machine learning area and many of which actually are very influential machine learning research community. When we assembled this talent team together, and it's become only become natural, this is around 2018, and we're starting this initiative called Qualcomm AI Research. And the key, right, is about to drive and accelerating the cutting-edge research to helping Qualcomm to accelerate the machine learning adoption at a company, as well as, as uh, contributing back to the research community as a whole. Maybe yeah, adding to this, very early on, we have a very clear focus uh, in terms of our research agenda, uh, primarily focused on the power efficiency for on-device AI experience, and also think about personalization. So when we think about power efficiency, is largely think about uh, bringing uh, machine learning workloads to the device where we can run very efficiently and with a very good user experience. And personalization is more coming down to the idea of make sure the machine learning models can be adapted to your personal need and a personal preference. For example, a lot of the speech and audio use cases fall in that category. And I have to say, with all the earliest research we have done, one of the clear highlights is we have a building the world-class 
quantization research team. So quantization research team is a primarily boils down to if people today, right, you're using FP32, FP16, or even people can talk about FP8, but I think we'll be able to quantize them into more uniform kind of data grids. So where the data can be presented much more efficiently and also even from a computation, from an implementation point of view, it will be the most power efficient data format we can implement on the device. And later on, as we're touching on more on the topic around generative AI, we'll be able to say a lot of breakthrough in terms of the ability we are able to bring all these use cases to the device. Actually, quantization of pre a very essential role for us. Uh, lately, we have expanded our team. I think Qualcomm AI Research, we probably have a size between two to 300 people in our range. So we cover very broadly when you think about fundamental research, when you think about platform research, platform research largely alluding to bringing all the efficiency technique to our AI computer platforms. And also is it coming down to applied use cases where you think about a lot of vision use case, even a lot of wireless use cases, we can bring state of our solution uh, to all the different technology and verticals. So generative AI is certainly a bit of a buzzword nowadays. Is that a new area of research for Qualcomm AI research? Or is it something that you've been working on for a while? So when people talk about generative AI, right? I think it's a subclass of AI where you're able to generate or even regenerate the new content. The new content can be text, can be image, can be video via resampling or sometimes it's called a reconstruction too. Even though the term of a generative AI is a bit new, but the technology behind it, what people call it a generative modeling, actually has been around for quite many years. For example, the familiar terms people think about GAN, think about VE, think about autoregressive models. Those technology or kind of machine learning practice has been around a few years now. So why, you know, generative AI just all of a sudden becomes so popular in a little sloppy way to explain, right? It really boils down to people realize actually just with the same kind of a generative methods. But if you are able to feeding this uh, model very efficiently with the internet skilled data, where you can just scrape the data from the internet, think about text data, think about image or even video data, and then being able to feeding the model through and also allow them also have a massive capacity to absorb all the data in a sort of a very knowledgeable way. I think that's a situation so we're sort of where the breakthroughs are happening. And then generate AI just bring a lot of uh, disruptive you know, benefits to the consumer and also to the enterprise industry altogether. One thing maybe I can add into this is as I mentioned, you know, when we think about generative AI, I think in a more broader term, I think uh, our research group has been working in those areas for quite a few years. So one of the key areas we have made a lot of investment is a topic called data compression. So when yeah. you think about data compression, you can think about the terms of speech compression, think about image compression, or think about video compression. One thing early on when we made investment in this area is because if you think about today, right, the data traffic on the internet today easily can be 80, 90% are all coming from uh, image and a video itself. So if we're able to using AI approach to further improve the uh, compression efficiency of the image and a video, I think this is going to provide in tremendous value to Qualcomm and also to the industry as a whole. 
I remember this is like probably four years ago. We have a jumping into this. And one of the early thought we saying, hey, look, this is essential. You think about you have a sender, you have a receiver, right? Transmitter and receiver. And it's about on a transmitter side, you have actually in this case, in general, we're applying this very popular technique called a VAE. It's called a variational autoencoder. Mm-hmm. So you have on the transmitter side, you have an encoder, right? Which is a trying to compress all the pixels down to latents. Uh, which is in a much more compact space. And then on the decoder side, then you will be able to decompress and reconstruct the samples. So in that sense, you can think about the decoder essentially play a very popular role as what we're discussing today. From a latent, you can reconstruct or resample to regenerating the image or video samples. In terms of, you think about the concept, in terms of the practice, it's very similar how the diffusion model is running the denoising step in terms of give you the reconstruction of the samples when you think about another use case of a stable diffusion. This is back in 2019. And also, I believe our team back then in 2019, in the ICCV 2019, one of the premium conferences in the machine learning, we have published one of the early papers in terms of applying the deep learning end-to-end approach towards video compression. Actually, that paper getting very high citation as it's a very popular amount of research community. Mm-hmm. So then soon afterwards, and we look at a variety of technique and how to improve and how to adding new benefits to this. As we speak today, I will say we are able to improve the efficiency to the level. It's probably at least on par or even slightly better compared to some other conventional technique. But more importantly, I think this kind of technique is bearing a lot of utility and flexibility. You know, for example, think about a video stream, right? It could be your social media video or it could be, let's say, a recorded film coming from Netflix, for example. If you're able to apply the neural net-based approach, then essentially you're able to customize, even personalize the content in terms of the codec itself to make sure the codec can be specific, customized to the video itself. So in essence, we are able to achieve even better efficiency and also make sure the compression is done in a, in a way even customized to the video scene itself. So a lot of potential. And also we are the first one to bring this kind of AI-driven video compression concept uh, to our device, to our mobile device. I think, uh, remember, this is about a year ago, we are able to demonstrate a CVPR last year on uh, the HD quality, the end-to-end AI-driven video compression scheme. So this is a de- getting a lot of a positive feedback uh, from a research community as well. It's an interesting analogy that you draw between generative AI and the diffusion model, stable diffusion in particular, and compression. You can almost imagine thinking about what if some compression model where you've got your transmitter and you convert that into text and text is easily compressible and then you use that text to generate a new image. If you can do that perfectly, that would be a great compression scheme. Right. I think that's why a lot of research opportunity in the area is endless for us. Uh, a lot of cool opportunity ahead of us too. So let's talk a little bit more about stable diffusion and the work there. You spent some time working to get stable diffusion running on a device. Why is that important? One thing we feel motivates us a lot in terms of running stable diffusion and you know on the edge coming on two folds. You know, on one side, stable diffusion model itself, right, is an open source model. So that's why it's a very, very popular and being able to putting effort into stable diffusion and also contributing back to the whole AI community. 
we felt this is a really big thing, you know, we can help all together. So on top of which, I would truly feel bringing stable diffusion to the edge, to the device, there's uh, quite a few benefits I can elaborate here. Now, first of all, right, it's really coming down to privacy. You know, privacy coming down to, for example, if I have a personalized prompts, which I probably hesitant to share to the cloud. But in this case, if we're able to keep the stable diffusion all running all together, right, in a device, so my prompt and my content all strictly speaking stay on the edge, I think this is a highly, highly sort of a beneficiary from a consumer point of view. But then it's also coming down to cost. You know, for example, we know when we discuss and communicate with all the hyperscaler, all the cloud players, uh, they did express a lot of concern, this kind of large, massive model running from the cloud point of view in terms of the per inference or in terms of when you think about running millions or even billions of inquiry, you know, for such kind of use cases, the cost has become prohibitive from the cloud player's point of view. So yeah. in this way, we are kind of distributed, right? And also getting on the, all the devices, a billion devices to amortize the inference cost is a huge benefit to everyone in the AI ecosystem. And also lastly, we also feel even reliability point of view from a performance because you don't have to send in the cloud. Sometimes the cloud can run out of capacity, but then on my device, I always have the capacity, always ready to process my personal needs. Yeah, so I think we see a very exciting way bring a lot of value in terms of bringing stable diffusion to the edge. Very cool to see that happening and I get a lot of positive feedback here. So, And so from a research and engineering perspective, what were the key challenges in making that happen and, and getting it to run on the device? Sure. So we can share a few insights about this question. I know first of all, we'll see the challenge and clearly is coming down to model size. So before stable diffusion, uh, the typical machine learning workloads, deep learning workloads we're running on the device, it's a more or less, let's say, less than 100 million parameters. Stable diffusion alone is like 1.1 billion parameters. It's almost like 10 times, right, in terms of workloads. And additionally, on top, you remember the stable diffusion, you need to running through the denoising steps. Uh, in the default mm -hmm. stage, you don't have to running through, let's say, 20, 50 steps. That's all kind of adding up in terms of complexity and then challenge how to, you know, being able to run in this workload on our device. So uh, one of the first question is to handle this kind of workload in terms of robustness and also the automation we have to make sure maintain to letting this model can run through our AI software toolchain. This is a really good challenge. It's a really good stretch, but, you know, it turns out our software stack is pretty robust to handle this end of the day, and we're very happy to see that. The second challenge clearly coming down to the inference latency. This would require a full stack research and optimization. Make sure from a model, a system algorithms for to software stack and eventually to the uh, hardware silicon processor itself, you know, end to end. We have to look at everything to be working very nicely together. Among which I would say, as I mentioned earlier, I think one of the big recipe we are being able to throw into this is about a quantization research. Mm -hmm. Remember when it came out, it's like FP32, FP16. If you just run them natively, even assume the model size you can support, this is clearly going to take even more than a minute and being able to run it on a device. So then mm -hmm. probably a user wouldn't be able to have the patience, right, to wait that long to say, hey, what is my final image coming out after a minute or two? So then what we've been able to do is without retraining the model, simply by applying the post-training techniques, 
And we are able to quantize a model efficiently. In particular, on the weights, we are able to quantize to 8-bit weights. But then we realize that simply, if you just do a simple, naive post-training quantization, we realize that the signal-to-noise ratio, or in terms of quality of the pixel you generated, actually is not good enough. So from that point of view, we realize we have applied more advanced PTQ, post-training quantization techniques, was something we call add-around. So add-around, in a, in a simple way, you can think about intuitively speaking. Most of the simple way, every single weight, when we think about quantization, usually we're just trying, trying to quantize to the nearest neighbor individually. But the add-around essentially, instead of looking at each of the weights individually, trying to creating the quantization more across the board in terms of per channel, even per tensor basis. So this will give us a more holistic view in terms of all the ways when you're going up and down, there's a more systematic way to think about on a bigger picture, what would be the better way to apply rather than uh, applying on a single ways. So it turns out the add around in general speaking, we realize if we think about quantize, quantization, right, to eight bits, for example. So add around actually magically can giving us virtually, it's still eight bits, right? But just because of applying the add-around technique, we're able to add in probably one more bit. But this one more bit is magical because a one more bit, of even virtually, roughly speaking, if people understand the term of signal-to-noise ratio, is adding us about four to six more dB. So four to six dB is very crucial in terms of able allow us to getting very efficient data format without retraining the model altogether. So that's why we are able to very quickly, within a very short time, applying the Adirond technique and I'm able to uh, release a demo at an MWC event, you know, back in the late February timeline. So, yeah. So just to recap there, the two key challenges were one, being able to work with this large model using your existing kind of tool chain and workflows. And then the second is some more specific challenges that arose in trying to achieve the desired performance levels, and in particular, the use of quantization. I think this question is related to both of those challenges. Did the ultimate solution from a quantization perspective, was this kind of a, an out-of-the-box push-button application of the toolchain, or was there a degree of research effort involved in achieving the result? So this is a really good point. By the way, uh, this is something I can make a small uh, advertisement here. We actually created an open source toolkit. It's called AMIT, called AI Model mm-hmm. Efficiency Toolkit. So the intent of which is uh, trying to democratize and providing very easy to use quantization toolkits for, let's say, data scientists or can be ML engineers being able to using with the convenience and ease. Let's say take the post-training quantization as an example. We have more turnkey flavored quantization features is available in AMIT. Actually, for example, developers can just pick up and use in a very relatively easy kind of format. But on the other hand, I have to say Adirond is a bit more advanced technique. You have to apply essentially like a localized optimization procedure uh, to all these models. But of course, we are packaging this uh, uh, localized optimization procedure into the, the quantization flow itself sort of letting things easy to do. But on the other hand, I have to say, because it's still involved as a local optimization procedure, it still takes some time and being able to run through the optimization procedure itself. 
So actually, one of the very essential efforts we're trying to work on is when we're trying to apply these kind of advanced techniques to large or even massive models, we're trying to reduce the optimization time significantly. So actually, in essence, you know, we're trying to bring more efficiency to this kind of advanced technique, and hopefully they will show up in the aim at a very, very soon. This required the local optimization is beyond the current capabilities of the toolkit, but maybe something that can be generalized and rolled into the toolkit for future use cases. Exactly. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on, on that a little bit and how specific to the diffusion model, the local optimization that you had to do was, you know, or you know, conversely, how generalizable do you expect it to be or what aspects do you expect to generalize? You're more specific pointing out the add-around technique or... Around for add-around, yes. So let me say the following. For example, add-around, we, when we apply to the stable diffusion models, I cannot get into too much details, but I can talk about a high level. We probably take about hours running time to apply the Adiron optimization procedures. But our goal, our goal actually, we are probably within line of sight. So we are targeting to reduce this optimization time from hours to minutes. And hopefully with this application of the more advanced version of Adiron, and we'll be able to make sure it's become more turnkey, right? Bring more benefits to all the developers. So can you talk a little bit about, I don't think you actually mentioned the, the results that you arrived at with, Stable diffusion, you were able to get that down to 15 seconds or so. Is that right? We're able to getting down to less than 15 seconds. It's, I think our record is like a, around 13 seconds right now. Uh, without going into details, we are actually working on the even more efficient version. When we think about you know, all the efficiency technique we can put around, I think we are very hopeful we can you know, bring this down to less than five seconds, hopefully in the next few months. We'll be very happy to report back to you, Sam, you know, by then. So, And without going into those details, are you expecting it to be in the same domain, additional work on quantization, or are there new techniques that you're looking to apply? We look at a combination of different kind of techniques here. So okay. quantization is still part of it too. So, yeah. Got it. And to what degree do the challenges that you saw in working with stable diffusion and getting that to run efficiently on device apply to other types of generative AI models like large language models? That's a really good point. So in general, actually, one of the nature of a generative AI, right, as I mentioned earlier, because essentially is a, is a training on internet scale data. So one of the sort of a property of these models, they have to be really large and being able to absorb all the knowledge coming from the internet scale data. And then in this space, actually, I can divide this kind of generative AI model largely to two different categories. We call LLM, right? Large language model. The other category I call LVM. It's called language vision models. So you can think about the diffusion model is a largely a stay under, stable diffusion, right? Stay under the LVM in that category. So within that category, I would say a lot of the technique when we're looking at from a quantization, from a software compilation, from a system hardware software co-design point of view. Uh, the practice we're doing from a stable diffusion is very, very directly leverageable. Apply into all the other kind of uh, LVM models. There's a one very popular model lately just come out called a SAM. Actually, <laughs> it happened to be <laughs> with your own name. It's got segment anything coming from Facebook. 
very early preliminary results, we realized, you know, technique we're doing for stable diffusion is very directly applicable to the same model coming um, from uh, Facebook. So then the LLM model is somewhat different. Somewhat different in a sense, LVM model, the most computation. And when we think about signal to noise ratio, when we think about the quality of the regeneration is you have to go in back to the pixel space, right? So that's why there is a more clear analogy between uh, stable diffusion with all the other LVM models. But coming back to LLM model, it's all kind of the or I should say largely, is a text-to-text. -text. So when you think about text-to-text, -text, it's more in an abstraction form. You think about it's from a token-to-token. -token. So it turns out the signal-to-noise ratio, when you think about the noise handling, when you think about the regeneration of the token itself, it's a very different kind of a beast as compared to LVM. But still, with that said... Why is it so different? Think about these things as all being vectors, you know, representation at some point. So very different in the sense of vision model, the, the vision model, because eventually at a pixel level, I need to having that representation in terms of grayscale and also RGB colors. So mm -hmm. in that sense, those will have a demanding eventually final the pixel output. I need to having enough bitwidth to represent. But if coming down just a simple text... And then the bit width, I can be a lot more aggressive towards in terms of compression, in terms of quantization. So in essence, for example, a very popular data format when we think about the sleepy diffusion, what we came up for the MWC demo, right? That's just like 8-bit for weights and 16-bit for activation. But for the LLM model, because it's a more abstraction form of what you think about language tokens, language mm -hmm. symbols, Actually, we can compress much more aggressively down to four bits. Even though we have a very early stage, we believe we have a potential maybe further reduce even beyond four bits. So I'm just saying LLM in general speaking, because on one side, I think this is a clearly benefits to us. Because on one side, we felt there's a more value to bring smaller bit width to LLM compared to sleepy diffusion or other LVM models. But on the other hand, generally speaking, right, you think about LVM typically is in a range of a model size between one to five billion. But when we go to LLM, right, if you think about cloud version, I get more than a hundred billion parameters. But yeah. even on the edge model, the very popular Lama model from Facebook, they're starting from seven billion too. So what mm -hmm. I'm saying is the clearly the quantization to smaller bit would have a more incentive to enable us to bring all these large language models to the device. So I think this is where actually we believe uh, one of the very important area we have to make sure stay ahead of the curve. Eventually we can bring the value to the industry and also make sure we're on the frontier to bring all these large language models to the device. We are very confident we'll be able to do so. And we probably look at a second half of the year as we working across the board between research, engineering, and product team. We're going to bring a lot of new announcement to the industry. So just to make sure I, I got that, I think my takeaway from that last bit of your explanation is that both the LLMs and the LVMs are challenging to run on device, but for different reasons. For the LVM, it's because essentially your, your feature dimensionality is so high with the pixel representation on the LLM side, it's the size of the model owing to the size of the, the training data. Right. Again, just kind of sharing with you and also the insight we have obtained looking at both LVM and LLM, right? On one side, this attention module is a very uh, sort of a important 
kind of constituent block, right? Yeah. Um, in terms of underneath the hook and being able to support both LVM and LLMs. So in essence, being able to putting out the best computation uh, support from our AI compute platform for softmax for attention module. We believe we're in a, in a best spot, at least from the edge, from the device front. But on the other hand, we also realize the computation nature between LVM versus LLM is also very different, meaning the compute density for the LVM is potentially much higher on a per weight basis as compared to LLM. This is also trying very different requirement when we think about this, the software stack, when we think about the graph level compilation technique, uh, applying to LLVM and LLM somewhat can be different too. But on the other hand, we have also very good recipe when we think about automated version of a software compilation from both the algorithm and also from a software practice point of view, we are very confident. We can push on both frontier and putting the most efficient form of implementation of the both category to the device in very, very near term for us. So Yeah, it's tempting to think that, you know, since transformers are becoming this kind of unifying architecture across all different modalities that you would just have one problem to solve. But it sounds like you still have very distinct problems to solve for each of these new models that you want to bring to the device. Yeah. It's also sort of coming down to term how people have the vision in terms of for the future, where AI is evolving, right? And also mm -hmm. how is it growing? How things are going to be look like? Many times when I'm talking to a lot of researchers from my team, one of the popular view, I believe this is a probably going to resonate with a lot of advanced research group across the world. If you think about largely in the form of a GPT or LLM model itself, it's like a probabilistic processing engine. That on itself, when you think about doing things like language processing, when you think about reasoning, when you think about planning, this kind of more abstract form of uh, advanced uh, cognitive tasks, I think those things still going to be constructed largely in the token space. Just like human today, when we do say one plus two equal to three, largely back in your head, you're running through this thing in a symbolic way, you know, heading the certain form. But on the other hand, you're going to have eyes and ears, you have arms and legs. Those are need to interact with the real world where you have to dealing with the world from a pixel space. And those are the things going to be more involving the model like LVM and, and pixel processing. So that's why stay within LLM or GPT processing going to be more abstraction form. But things going to, as I said, you know, eyes and ears and arms legs will getting more involved in pixel, more intense computation in a sense. So to what degree does that observation kind of suggest that multimodality types of models that pull in both of these is an area that needs to be focused on from a research perspective for you? We see a very strong need, right? Even just from LLM processing itself, you think about ChatGPT, right? Today, if I'm sitting next to a PC, I'm sitting in the next terminal, it's sort of a natural, I can do keyboard, right? I can do text prompt and I'm getting the text back from the ChatGPT. If I'm using ChatGPT or something equivalent as my, let's say, in the use case of a personal assistant on my mobile phone, I'm carrying my mobile phone around, I want to communicate with my personal assistant, right? It will be a bit cumbersome. I have to type all the time. So in essence, 
if I can take the my hands away, right, become hands free, even touch free, I can essentially going through using speech as a um, modality to communicate and exchange with the you know chat GPT. That itself, I think already we felt a strong need. So probably is already you know some of the people are hackering and make that happen, and we we assuming this going to be really popular as a way you know people going to communicate with the GPT. But adding on top, I think from a research side, actually, this is a topic we started about 18 months ago. We're starting a research track in our Qualcomm AI research. It's called a System 2 research track, because I think this is a term coming from Joshua Banjo. He talked about System 1, right? It's more as a way of you do pattern recognition is a very instinctive, right? And you're just kind of trying to do a pattern recognition in a sense. But the System 2 is a more cognitive. It's more think about reasoning, more think about decision-making. And it could be processing a bit to kind of slow down kind of format, allow the machine to, you know, kind of reflect and also make a more cash, a sort of a high-level uh, cognition, in a sense. So from a system, too, I think one of the strong flavor we're trying to bring into the space essentially is trying to bring visual or vision modality into LLM. So in a way, think about you can be uh, running a visual prompting, right? In a visual prompting, whenever the camera is seeing the real scene, and it can have a scene understanding and can sending the process token after visual understanding into LLM, and LLM can take this visual inputs and be able to communicate and discuss with, the, let's say, human or other people, right? In a more sort of uh, cognitive way taking all the, all the contextual sort of environment into account. I think this will bring a lot of more benefits altogether. By the way, just on this topic, in terms of visual understanding, visual reasoning, there's a very challenge in kind of benchmark and laying around. We have most recently made some breakthrough in this area, and we make this one submission to NeurIPS. I believe our researcher has published us, you know, state of our results, essentially probably become on top of the leaderboard for some of the benchmarks. So very excited to see a lot of progress in this space. Jumping back to your perspective, kind of leading this research organization, I'm curious, does the the rise of generative AI, although we've talked about that and how it's not necessarily all new, does it call for dramatic changes in priorities or organization or anything like that from your perspective? Or from your seed, is it another area to explore like all the others and to kind of tie into the various things you're doing? How do you process everything that's happening out in the world with regards to generative AI and kind of direct the organization there? So that's a really good point. On one side, I would say things are not related to generative AI. For example, a lot of work still in a classification prediction kind of planning kind of space, not using generative AI technique. I think a lot of the things I think still have its own value. And also in terms of our technology investment and working with all different kind of views, verticals, I think there's still a clear impact. I think we're not going to stop in those. I think those are still something we're going to continue our strong investment. But having said that, I think generative AI itself, in terms of the sheer volume of research breakthrough and also the business impact bring to the corporation, to the enterprise, to the industry, right? It's just humongous. So from that point of view, we definitely is very seriously looking at how to readjust our research organization, make sure 
all the R&D effort we can organize around the LLM and the general AI and can allow us to bring the best value to the company and to the industry. So a few things I probably can mention just at a very high level, I feel very excited and a core, putting Qualcomm at a very exciting space. From uh, general AI, we feel we're going to lead the industry and also contributing and very substantial. So the first thing I don't know if you have heard is running the general AI models actually is a very inefficient. When I say very inefficient, imagine the ChatGPT model is building on top of the model size of 175 billion parameters. So 175 billion parameters actually turn out the inference model. You see you cycling through all the 175 billion parameters in terms of all the data transfer from a memory to the processor and running through the computation inside the processor. You're only generating one output token at a time. Extremely inefficient. I think a lot of researchers and a lot of companies realize. So one thing we felt we're going to bring to the table here, looking at going beyond a single token generation, how can we bring multi-token generation to the table? So then we can substantially reduce the bandwidth consumption and make sure we can improve the compute density and also make sure we can reduce the inference cost from both cloud and edge side in a very substantial form. So that itself, we felt, is a very important topic, even from an overall economy point of view. I feel we can bring a lot of to the table. Now, the second thing is about also about training of all these models. This is still very early stage, but we just felt training all these large language models today in this compute paradigm today, training everything on a super expensive NVIDIA DGX superpower. I think that itself is overkill. So we're looking at bringing a lot of sophisticated optimization and mathematical algorithm, really trying to look at a simplify the training of these massive models. So in essence, we felt there's a lot of good hopes we probably can bring table there too. The last thing I'd like to mention is also a new AI inference paradigm, what we call the hybrid AI. So when we think about hybrid AI, essentially is a new mechanism where we can allow the edge and the cloud to working very efficient together. So in essence, you can think about one of the popular kind of paradigm in the future will be if we can equip right the edge device with large language model capability, where we can run substantial amount of, of these LLM workloads on the edge and only on a needed basis. For example, it could be challenging, could be sophisticated use cases. On occasion basis, we can offloading all the compute back to the cloud. But then to make that kind of vision happen, to design the system architecture, to make sure uh, bring the LLM uh, capability to the edge and also having the ability to sort of direct the workloads dynamically between the edge and the cloud. I think uh, Qualcomm also, I feel we are in a very prominent position. We can work with all the cloud players to make this vision to become a reality. So overall, there's a lot of we can contribute in the LLM area from both the research and a business impact point of view. We are definitely very much looking up to a lot of new opportunity in this area. Awesome. Well, Jile, thank you so much for sharing with us a bit about all the things you're up to there and making these technologies accessible on our devices. Yeah, thank you, Sam. Really appreciate it. I'm very happy to talk to you here. Same, thank you. All right, thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. 
Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.